institution of marriage is suffering. Here are some simple facts and figures, nonpartisan, just observations that have been made by, by no few individuals over the recent years. Um, consider marriage rates. 1970, 80% of all adults were married. 1970, 80% were married. Today it's 52%. 1960, the median age for a first marriage was 20 for women and 23 for men. Today it's 27 for women and 29 for men. Moving from marriage rates to observations about millennials. 25% um, of millennials are likely to forego marriage altogether. One report says that a record share of millennials will remain unmarried through the age of 40. Sam Sturgeon, president of Demographic Intelligence, says that all of this represents what he calls a cultural retreat from marriage. A cultural retreat from marriage. Now, I put that out there, uh, those facts, those figures, and there's a question that ought to be asked after that. And if you're not asking it, you really ought to be. Many are. And it goes like this. Who cares? Does that actually matter? You've just given us some facts. So what? They're trends. What, what's the big deal? Is that really an issue? Does that matter? And, and why should we be concerned? Well, we should be concerned if we are, in fact, concerned for the vulnerable. And if I can put it this way, the least among us are children. Again, some facts and figures, some, some stats and uh, the stakes involved. Again, nonpartisan observations, left, right, immaterial. Children from divorced or never married homes are more likely to die in infancy, more likely to get divorced themselves or become unwed parents later in life, more likely to live in poverty, more likely to fail in school, less likely to graduate from college, less likely to get a good job, less likely to be in good physical health, more likely to abuse drugs as teens and adults, have lower life expectancies, have higher rates of mental illness, be at greater risk of suicide and child abuse. Again, nonpartisan facts and figures. Blue, red, left, right. East Coast, West Coast, flyover country, those are the observations. Statisticians across the board are in concurrence on this. Now, the significance of that and, the, and, and perhaps what to do with that, there, of course, there is great breadth of opinion. I would just say this at the outset of, of this study here this morning. With such stakes and with such stats and facts and figures, it would seem that it is incumbent uh, for us to look to God and his word to hear what he would have to say to breathe, so inject some sanity, some stability uh, into all of this. So we're going to get back into our study in the Gospel of Matthew now. Matthew 19 is where we are. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn out there with me. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew is the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Uh, Matthew chapter 19. We're just going to read verses 1 through 9. Uh, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, 
He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, just as we were reading just a few moments ago from Psalm 19, being reminded yet again of how your law is perfect and in that it revives our souls. Your testimonies are sure and they make wise the simple. Your precepts are right, they bring joy to the heart. Your commandments are pure, they bring light to the eyes. They are clean, they endure. Your rules are, are true and righteous altogether, desirable, sweeter than anything, any wisdom, any counsel, any foundation upon which we could build. Any other is sand. It's just sand. And some sand may last just a little bit longer than, than others but it's still just sand. We would build upon the rock. We would long to build upon the rock. We would long that our lives would have some foundation, some stability. When the, when the storm comes, when the sun shines, here at the outset of this time, we... Uh, Acknowledge that that is only found in your word. And even where that is challenging, we ask that you would help us to order ourselves, order our thoughts, our lives, our hearts under it, recognizing that your ways are, are good. Are good. And meant for our deepest good. Truly, truly, truly. This is a difficult topic we're about to dive into, and we pray that you would uh, dig ears with which we could hear. I pray in your name. Amen. Jesus' message, again and again, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, is described, summarized as being the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom, meaning that the king has come, the long-awaited uh, Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God come to bring in, to usher in the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God brought from heaven to earth. It's good news. In Jesus, that king, the kingdom of God has come. It has touched ground. He has come 
to reclaim what is his. He has come to restore that which was broken. He has come to make all things new, including us, including us. Now, a message like that, which is the message of the gospel, is not something that ought to be shrunk down, just to be truncated to just little, little areas, little pockets of our lives. A message like that is transformative. It explodes, it bleeds, it permeates into, into everything when, you, when we're hearing it. We're grappling with the fact that this is the king. This is the king who has come, and this is the kingdom that he is ushering in. In, it, it, he comes and he, it ought to be, we ought to understand this is, is something transformative to, to everything, including, especially, our relationships. And that's what we've been seeing over the last several weeks as we've been delving into Matthew 18. Now, I'm not going to preach a half a dozen sermons over again right now, but just remind you what we've been looking at over here the last several weeks, the implications of the gospel of the kingdom just for our relationships, how we understand ourselves how we understand one another, how we understand our mutual and, you know, owning also our own struggles with sin. And therein, coupled with that, the call to forgive and what that entails. The gospel of the kingdom, this transformative, restorative, broad, beautiful message impacts all of that. That theme in Matthew 18 carries right over into chapter 19. Here's right on over. And what we see here, again, Jesus calling us into kingdom community, that has implications in our understanding of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, the call to singlehood, the dignity of children, the edginess of his call to follow him. That's what we'll see in the coming weeks with Matthew 19. And all of that is under the umbrella of his calling of us into kingdom community. That's what we see, Matthew 18, Matthew 19. This is just the, the, the flow, one into the other. Jesus has called us into kingdom community. This text that we just read a few moments ago makes abundantly clear he's called us into kingdom community. That means we must then approach our relationships, including marriage and divorce in a whole new way. In a whole new way. Not the way maybe we were accustomed to thinking of it. Not the way that everyone else around us thinks of it. But in a whole new way. Because he's called us into kingdom community. Transformative. Restorative. Bright. Beautiful. All of that. Let me just say that again. I mean, that's, that's a kind of a thing to say. But again, just making this point, Jesus has called us into kingdom community. We must then approach all of our relationships, including marriage and divorce, in a whole new way. And we see that in this passage, at least in three ways, at least in three ways, and it's there in your, in your outline. This, this new way, this new lens, this new grid through which we ought to understand marriage and divorce. First, the challenge of marriage, that's the first thing. The second thing is understanding the design of marriage, its, its roots, its purpose, its origins, all of that. And then thirdly, of course, it's there. We, we all saw it. The rupture 
of marriage as well. Let's look at this in turn, these three things, the challenge, the design, and the rupture. Let's go back to starting again, verse 1 on through verse 3, uh, the challenge of marriage. What do we see here? As the stage is set for this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, when Jesus had finished these things, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We need to stop there and talk about the context of this question. The stage of Jesus' ministry, when is this happening? The Galilee phase of his ministry is over. He is now beginning the, the slow, steady march southward to Jerusalem. That will end in Good Friday. And he knows that. This is not a, a haphazard trip he's taken. It's not just a road trip with some buddies. This is an agenda. This is a mission. He has set his mind, set his heart, set his face to go to Jerusalem. So the Galilee mission is, is over, moving towards Jerusalem, and yet at the same time, with all that, that context that he knows, his ministry, his mission of, of teaching and healing continues. That's the stage of his ministry. At the same time, there are opponents to his ministry right in the mix, the Pharisees. In the midst of the crowd, there are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, some of you may be familiar with who these are, some of you may not. That's, that's fine, just to quick tell you. This is a party within Judaism at the time that was deeply committed to biblical tradition, biblical principles, but yet also the traditions and rules that they had put up around them like barnacles on the hull of a ship, building, building, building. And they're devoted not just to the essentials of what God has said, but what they said about God had said. Okay, They're committed to all of that. And Matthew tells us that they're there that day questioning Jesus, testing Jesus. And by the way, you need to understand that's not quizzing. They're there to entrap him. They want to ensnare him to bring him into this debate. And that takes us into this, moving from the context of the question to the context of the question, or the content, excuse me, the con from the context of the content. So there's this question that they pose to him. It's quite a question, isn't it? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You can kind of, there's a slant there, isn't it? Do you hear that? Um, it really doesn't sound like the, the prizing of marriage is driving this question. And that's absolutely right, in the sense that that's correct, as far as what's driving the question. It would be helpful to understand the debate that's going on at the time, and the sides of the debate, and who's taking what sides, and why, and that sort of thing. So if you want to keep your thumb there in Matthew 19, and go with me to Deuteronomy 24. Uh, this is Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, uh, it's, it's, it's a long sentence here. Uh, you might get lost in it. Um, so to help you, let me just tell you that verses 1 through 3 is a, is a set, like Moses is setting up a condition, a situation, and then verse 4 is, okay, based on that, here's what you do. Okay, to kind of give you some, uh, some guides as to what, where we're, what we're reading here. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. All right, what's going on here? This is what we call case law. A situation is set up. The rules and regulations are then set in terms of here's how, what you do in that situation. That's what that's got going on. So you have the situation, you have the scenario, verses 1 through 3, the rulings, the regulations, the restrictions set up to protect women from being treated as objects. That's what uh, put down there in verse 4. Okay, there are, at Jesus' day, there are sides of the debate here. Two rabbinical schools. You have the followers of this man, Rabbi Shammai, who said, okay, in terms of when, what Moses is speaking of there in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, but something indecent, we need to understand that as being adultery. So if in case of an adulterous woman, that's what the indecent thing would be. That's when a, door, a divorce would be allowable. That would be the school of Shammai. Then you have the school of Hillel, another guy. Much looser interpretation, much looser interpretation. What they said was, no, no, no. It's just based upon the husband's whims. Which means, and we have writings on this topic, that it was possible for a man, according to, to, to followers of this particular rabbinical school of thought, if in fact she was a bad cook, if in fact he found an, a, another newer, prettier option, bets are off, proceed. And they want Jesus to enter into this debate. This is what's going on. Uh, this is what they want him to weigh in on. Well, I just before we even get into that, we just I think it's helpful to ask the question: What's driving this? What's going on here? What kind of heart condition are we reading and interpolating here? And in the honesty, the brutal honesty that we see here again, yet again on display here in the pages of the Bible, where they were obsessing with, and we today in our own ways obsess with. What are the grounds? What are the grounds? What are the grounds? Translation, how long do I have to stay in this? When can I get out? That's not an ancient question only. It's a very modern question. And we think in terms of the, the statisticians and the studies that are done, you know, what are the chief causes of marital strife and, and they're in divorce? And, you know, top three are always, uh, well, fights about sex and money and in-laws. And we think that's it. And others who are a little bit more reflective say, well, that, okay, that's true, but you also have to counter or, or, or count, account for it and count for um, just boredom. Just boredom. Or tragedy, suffering that the relationship cannot withstand. Or sin, evil done one to the other that breaks, that shatters the bonds. Okay, all that's true. But you know what the fundamental core issue of marital struggles is? It's a whole lot more simpler than what I just said. The core struggle, the core problem for every marriage are the people married. The hearts of the people who are in the marriage. 
That's the core issue. And that comes up again and again and again in the beautiful, candid way that we see the authors of the Bible describing our, our bent, broken heart's condition. No, no soft pitches here. No watering down. The, 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 the sorrowful reality is laid forth here again and again and again. The honesty, the honesty is worth reckoning with. So we start with, coming back to where I began, this, this sort of propositional statement for the, this message. Jesus has called us into kingdom community. We need to let that bleed into all of our relationships, including marriage and divorce, thinking of that in a whole new way, beginning with just being honest. Just being honest in the way we approach this. Which takes us to the second thing. Uh, the design for marriage that Jesus puts forward here for us. So I'm going to stop, come back to verse 3 now, to the question and the first wave of, of answer that Jesus gives. So verses 3 through 6, Matthew 19. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You note here that, that Jesus questions their question. He's redirecting it. Because, of course... That's exactly what they need, exactly what we need, is to be redirected so often in our thoughts about such things. And he speaks to the, we'll start with this, the fact of a design. Just the, the bare fact of a design. He is speaking of something that is deeply woven into the fabric of reality. He's quoting back, for, or hearkening back to Genesis chapter 2, where God, the maker of all things, creates and fashions and declares how things are meant to be. And that deeply woven fabric, it's something that's been truly set into reality in such a way that it cannot be, it cannot be ignored without consequences. It cannot be dismissed without bringing hurt and harm to people to living souls because this is the fabric of reality how God has made things to be just as surely if you take your hand and run the wrong way on a piece of wood you will get a bad splinter because you're going against the grain and in that there are consequences if I can put it that way well so there's the fact of the design Jesus just reminds us of here first but then not just the, the bare fact of it but the features of it. What is the design? What is the design for marriage? He makes it very clear that marriage from the beginning was never intended to be a contract. That is to say, a relationship, a commitment conditioned on the response of the other party. God's design never intended to be that, never meant to be a, understood as a contract, but always meant to be understood as a covenant as a covenantal love bond. Let, let me just unpack that, if I can, with three words. It is meant to be permanent. It is meant to be exclusive. 
and it is meant to be comprehensive. So the whole of life, and all of life, you're married. Okay? So permanent, exclusive, comprehensive love bond between a man and a woman. And that is God's definition, design, for marriage. And you cannot take any of those bare essential fundamental features of that definition, rip it out, and then call it marriage. You can call it something else if you want to, but you can't call it marriage. You can't take out the permanency, the exclusivity, or the comprehensiveness, or between man and woman, even if the courts say otherwise. You can call it something else, but by God's design, we cannot call it marriage. It's something else. It's simply something else. This is what Jesus is speaking to here. He's bringing us back to essentials. He's calling us back to, if I can put it this way, the map. The map. Now, I love maps. I really do. Much to the consternation of some people in my family. But, um, and GPS is great. Of course it is. You know, hands-free, awesome. Continually updated, great. You know when the bridge is actually out. That's good. But there's nothing like having the lay of the land. To be able to see the whole picture. Details and the comprehensiveness of it. And that's what we have here, the map of marriage that Jesus is calling us to here, calling us back to here, that we have to come back to even at the start of, of any marital relationship and all throughout when we lose our way. Now, I'm going to come back to what I said about courts and culture, and, and I know that got the attention of no few. I could see it in your faces. Make statements like that at your workplace or over the backyard fence or at the barbecue, and you will be accused, if you haven't already, charges of arrogance and bigotry. And we need to be honest about a few things on that. First of all, a lot of times those charges are grounded because we have spoken out of arrogance and bigotry. Just saying. <laughs> at the same time, not necessarily always. To speak in such ways, to speak of, if I can put it this way, you know, sub-points of the outline, the, the fact of a design for marriage and the features of the design for marriage, we, we need to acknowledge, we need to be open, we need to be honest with the fact that these are faith positions and uh, truth claims and that we're saying that we're based on some fundamental worldview issues of how we see reality, this is how we see the issue. We need to own that. At the same time, engage with people in conversation and dialogue to help them to see that everyone has that. Everyone is coming to every significant issue with a faith position, making a truth claim, seeing it through a grid, seeing it through a worldview. We all are making the claims like that. I think I'm right. And therein I want to persuade you I'm right, which, of course, you know, the flip side of that coin is what? You're wrong. Because it's mutually exclusive truths. To, to speak in, in such ways is, not again, not necessarily arrogant and bigoted. 
And the issue is really not, is, does everyone make such claims? Does everyone have a faith position? Does everyone have a worldview from which they're making such statements? That's not the issue. The issue is, what are they? What are the, what are the truth claims and the faith positions? And what actually does lead to flourishing? What actually does lead to flourishing or, or not? Just think with me for a moment. I'm going to bump to the next point here in a minute. Um, if, in fact, we live in the creation of a, of a creator and we're part of that creation ourselves, it stands to reason that we would jump towards the manual that he has given as to how to operate and flourish within that design of what he has made. Well, that is what we have right here. Right here. And while that kind of thing can be said arrogantly and bigotedly, I'm just making up words now, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be said in a hurtful way. It can be said in a very helpful, loving, compassionate way knowing that this is actually true. Again, Jesus has called us into kingdom community. We need to live that out in all of our relationships, including these matters of marriage and divorce, in a whole new way. Third point, moving into from the, the challenge of marriage to the design of marriage to the rupture of marriage. The Pharisees, of course, they're not going to leave this alone. And so Jesus and continues this dialogue with them. Picking up verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. All right. This takes you back to that text we read earlier from Deuteronomy 24. It's why I really wanted to go back there because it keeps coming up in this discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees. Okay? And clearly, they are demonstrating some uh, mistaken interpretation of that passage and the intent from the beginning as to what that passage was, was about. The Pharisees, they were looking for loopholes. Loopholes, some way they could get out from underneath what Moses is saying and the intent of it and the regulation, the protection of vulnerable women. Um, the Pharisees saw Moses as encouraging and even in some cases commanding divorce depending on circumstances. Jesus is saying, you have completely misread it. You are completely out to lunch. Moses did not encourage or command this. He allowed it. He permitted it under extreme circumstances. And you know why? Because of the universal depravity of the human heart. That there has to be allowance. The brokenness of the human condition. That allowances under certain circumstances have to be made. And they're not letting that lie. Because Jesus, of course, knows the human heart oh so well. He speaks to, explicitly, one of those allowable circumstances. Um, sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. You may recognize you know, how that's applied in, in another word in our day, pornography. Uh, porneia is, again, sexual immorality. It is a broad term that encompasses 
all kinds of different sexual sin, including adultery, that needs to be translated according to the context in which you find it, all of which, any of which, is a, is a break of the marital bond. Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking to that very clearly here. The Apostle Paul, an authorized spokesman for Jesus as an apostle, in 1 Corinthians 7 adds something else, and that is desertion. Desertion. And as uh, one of my professors in seminary uh, wrote in a brilliant uh, work of biblical ethics, said, what you see is the common bond between what Jesus is saying here in, in Matthew 19 and what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, the commonality between those two points is a radical breach of marital troth. A radical breach of marital troth, which, by the way, and we don't have time to get into this, would include certain cases of abuse. It would. It would. This is what Jesus says about the rupture of marriage and the circumstances under which it's, it's, it's allowed. Uh, we have spoken already about the need for honesty in, in discussions about this, the need for some clarity in terms of the definition. Here I would just say we, we are in desperate need, and Jesus gives us of some sanity, some sanity as well. So the honesty, the clarity, the sanity. All that said, don't hear what he's not saying. Don't hear what he is not saying. He is not saying here in Matthew 19, or anywhere else for that matter, that someone who initiates or pursues an unbiblical divorce cannot be forgiven. That is not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. Don't hear him saying that. He is not saying that someone involved in a subsequent marriage after divorce cannot have a fulfilling relationship. That is not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. But what he is saying is he's putting to, the, to lie the tall tales and myths that we tell ourselves about these things. And let me just give you five real quick. Five myths, tall tales about circumstances under which divorce is, is okay in the sight of God. One, the love ran out. The love ran out. That is assuming a, a truckload of stuff. One, that, that you actually had the objectivity to see and say that. Um, that uh, it can't return. Let's just assume you're right. Let's, it's assuming it can't return. Uh, and that your feelings are actually a steady foundation to really talk about this. That's myth one. Myth two, this is best for the children possible under the rarest of conditions, and again, you're probably too close to it to, to weigh that object objectively, so you certainly need some other people speaking into it. It also is a false dilemma. It is assuming that the only choices before you are stay in the marriage to the hurt of the children or get out without considering a third possibility, and that is that the marriage could change. That's myth two. Myth three, God led me to do it. Again, that's operating on a foundation of feelings oftentimes, and I, 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 I'm just going to say it this way. God does not speak with a forked tongue. He's saying one thing here and one thing here. That's the third myth. Fourth, a loving God wouldn't want me to suffer. Are you sure? I mean, seriously, are you sure? Ask Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that question. 
It is assuming that he is more concerned with your happiness than your holiness. That's the fourth myth. The fifth one, God will forgive me. My friends, this is the worst of all. None of them are good. This is the worst of all because this is to abuse his mercy and to presume upon his love and to treat it as a trinket instead of a treasure. Just a throwaway thing. Just a throwaway thing. Yes, he'll forgive you. But don't make a terrible decision based on that. And yes, he forgives any and all of us who have fallen prey and into these myths and lies and tall tales. But don't walk down that path because of that. Remember Psalm 19. The life-giving nature of his ways and his intents and his purposes for us. Again, Jesus calls us into kingdom community that is meant to impact and transform all of our relationships, including how we think of marriage and divorce, impelling us to see all this in a whole new way. So I've mentioned honesty and clarity, sanity. I have one more. Wrap it up. Humility. Humility. Because the reality is, every single marriage in this room falls grossly short of God's ideal. This one included. Every single one. Every single one. We all fall short. And this is a very high bar that he is setting for us. So lest this crush us here at the, the, you know, before we go to the final song and the benediction and go out with a half smile on our face, lest this crush us, we need to consider again who's speaking. Who is speaking? In just a few short weeks, this same Jesus is going to be brutally killed and beautifully raised that the guilt of our sin would be forgiven and the power of sin over us would be broken. That same Jesus who's speaking here, recorded for us in Matthew 19, is undergoing that for us. The resurrected Christ, you know what, think of the implications of this, the resurrected Christ, the mighty, matchless Savior, stands ever, ever with us and ever for us, which means that we are ever able to begin again. No matter what we've done, no matter how we've fallen, no matter how frail we are, we are ever able to begin again. This minute, this minute, just think with me from a, a scientific, physical way of new beginnings. Like, what happens every day when we get up out of bed? What has happened? What has happened, I'll just generously say, in the eight hours, in the eight hours that you've been lying there in bed, you know what's happened? Let's just think in two ways, two examples. You've been asleep. That was not wasted time. Physicians will tell us that that was a restorative process that does wonders for the health of the body and the brain. It's why when you have a good night's sleep, you wake up what? Refreshed. You feel like a new person. Hold that. What else has happened in those eight hours that you've been lying there in that bed? Did you know that because you've been sitting here on planet Earth, you have traveled some 532,000 miles to the solar system while you were lying in bed? So you know what those two things mean? You're a whole new person in a whole new place. <laughs> That's just talking about sleep. That's just talking about when your little peepers open up on Monday morning, whole new person, whole new place, 
Christian, you are indwelled by the very power who put that into work and raised Jesus from the dead. You are indwelled with that same power. He is with you and for you. You can ever begin again this millisecond. You need not wait. You need not wait. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter what the issues are, no matter what's coming to your mind right now, we can always begin again. He's called us. Yes, he's called us into covenant community. We must then think in terms of a transformative way of how that impacts all of our relationships. And that said, we can. We can because of who calls us. The matchless Savior. Let's pray. Lord, your kingdom has come. It is coming. You have come to make all things new, and one day they will be, and we ask that you would help us to live with courage and hope in light of that. You have said that even now this very moment as your followers, as your people, as your disciples, we are new creatures, new creations of power at work within us now. You have called us with all of that in view to live in kingdom community, not as before, not as we see all around us patterned. You intend for us to be signposts. You've called us out as disciples of the Master, ambassadors of the King. Oh, give us a vision for these things in all things, including all of our relationships. Give us eyes with which to see this, hearts that would beat in cadence with yours. We pray in your name. Amen.